Welcome to the New Thinking for a New World podcast, where we explore the most pressing issues that are challenging and changing our societies. We are looking for new thinking and new solutions wherever we can find them. Listen as host Alan Stoga, the Talberg Foundation's chairman, challenges his guests for analysis, ideas and actions. Together, we can help make our world at least a bit better. Human history is a long and continuing story of migration. People have always moved out of fear or out of opportunity. Nonetheless, truly mass migration is one of the characteristics of our time. According to the UNHCR, today more than 100 million people have been forcibly displaced from their homes. One third of those are refugees who have fled their countries. Ukraine alone has produced more than 8 million refugees, according to some sources. Although the media focuses on the people struggling to enter Europe or America, the reality is that three quarters of refugees are in low and middle income countries, often neighbors to their countries of origin. Nonetheless, despite lots of rhetoric to the contrary, the most desirable destinations seem determined to harden their borders against the remaining millions trying to get to safety and prosperity. Arguably, that too is part of an old continuing story. But aren't we supposed to be better than that in the mid-21st century? After all, we have the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the UN 1951 Refugee Convention, asylum rights enshrined in national law in the United States and elsewhere. However, my guest today is not a lawyer. Amelia Frank Vitale is an anthropologist with years of experience studying migration in Honduras and Mexico, as well as on the U.S. border. She's also an activist who's interested in the migrants as people, not as plaintiffs. Welcome, Amelia, to New Thinking for a New World. Thank you so much. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. It's a pleasure to be here. Amelia, you've lived and worked with migrants. You know them as people. You also know Honduras, which I at least would argue is a failed state. Should anyone be surprised that so many Hondurans want out of that place? Oh, absolutely not. Uh, Honduras is a an interesting country. It's a beautiful country in many ways. Um, I lived in Honduras, uh, primarily my base was in Honduras from 2017 to 2019, but I've spent time before that and after that in Honduras. And there's a lot that's wonderful about Honduras. Um, but the situation of deep insecurity is more than anything, I think, uh, at least anyone from the United States can kind of get their heads around. Um, I think the the label of a failed state is <clears throat> perhaps true in some parts of the country. I think the state could do more than it does. Um, but the intersections of organized crime and negligence and, frankly, a legacy of neoliberal neoliberal privatization um, has left people really to their own devices. Um, a lot of people in Honduras will say something along the lines of solo el pueblo salva el pueblo, um, the kind of idea of every man for themselves. Um, I think Honduras maybe maybe more than a failed state is something along the lines of a failed society. People feel so atomized and so unprotected and unconnected that no, um, for so many people, the, 
the last, they, they don't necessarily want to leave their country. They don't necessarily want to leave their communities. Um, but people live so close to the edge. They are so close to being plunged into disaster that if one thing goes wrong, if someone loses a job, if someone in the family gets ill, if someone is murdered, which happens with alarming frequency, um, the only chance that people often feel like they have to survive, quite literally, is to try migrating. Um, and I do think that is a, a different kind of um, effective animus for why, what, what is going on behind migration. It is not particularly aspirational. It is not for anyone a an easy choice to make. They do not expect it to be um, a kind of easy path to wealth and prosperity, but it is the the sort of last best option when something else goes wrong. What is the reality of being a Honduran refugee as she travels north? What's it like? I'm so glad that you use the word refugee because I think in so many ways, Hondurans are cast sort of discursively as migrants as opposed to being refugees. And clearly the situation I've described um, does make us think that these are people fleeing for a, a chance of life, which is much more akin to the sort of classical definition of refugee than what gets... Um, although I think this isn't always uh, representative of reality, but often um, divided as either economic migrants or refugees. And in Honduras, I think those things, as in many parts of the world, are so deeply intertwined. So for someone who is fleeing Honduras, the trajectory to try to get to the United States is absolutely harrowing. Um the U.S.-Mexico border has been essentially extended all through Mexico and into Guatemala, even into Honduras in some cases, if you're, for example, Venezuelan and trying to make your way north. Um, so people start dealing with migration controls um, really before they even leave Honduras. Um, the Honduran-Guatemala border uh, if you are uh, trying to migrate, can, that can even be difficult to get across, even though within Central America there is um, a free movement agreement within uh, four countries in Central America for adults with just your national ID. But uh, border guards are often not um, respect, don't often respect the, the laws as such and still give people a hard time trying to leave Honduras. Um, Guatemala can be tricky. Uh, Guatemalan police and Guatemalan military have been known to stop people. And uh, in exchange for bribes, they usually let them go on. Um, but even just getting across Guatemala, which is the first country after Honduras, um, can require money and resources um, and, and luck, just a lot of luck. But then getting into Mexico and getting through Mexico is increasingly harrowing. Um, Mexico over the last uh, about two decades has, I guess three decades at this point, 
has increasingly militarized its own immigration enforcement at the behest of the United States in, in large part. Um, but especially since NAFTA um, and the sort of increasing economic cooperation between the United States and Mexico, there's been a, an enduring and growing um, Mexican immigration enforcement uh, infrastructure um, that the United States has supported and funded and trained and equipped in, in increasing levels, um, especially over the last decade. So getting through Mexico has become something of, of a nightmare for people who are, who are not Mexican, who are trying to travel through Mexico uh, without papers. Um, a lot of people uh, have started to try to get some sort of recognition in Mexico, um, whether that is to seek refugee status in Mexico or to access a humanitarian visa um, or other kinds of temporary or contingent paperwork that would allow people to travel north. Um, and people do that because there has been such a uh, campaign of terror against migrants in Mexico um, by both immigration officials and the organized crime groups that do control so much of Mexico. Uh, migrants have been kidnapped for ransom um, in very large numbers, um, but also uh, suffer terrible rates of sexual assault um, and forced labor, um, again, at the hands of both Mexican officials and uh, members of organized crime groups from um, the drug cartels, but also sort of local groups and uh, the Maras, which have a presence in some parts of Mexico as well. Um, all of which has made crossing Mexico an increasingly treacherous experience. Let me pull on two of the strings that you've that, that are hanging out of that particular rug. One is the militarized borders, both in Central America and between Guatemala and Mexico. I've read somewhere that you argue that there is a macabre caveat to that militarization, which is one of these principles of, of migrants, migration, I suspect, that we ought to be aware of. You've argued that the more difficult the passage, the more lucrative the market, which plays into the criminal gangs and the cartels. Explain that. Absolutely. So this is um, something that I think we see first starting to happen along the U.S.-Mexico border. And then as uh, bordering practices are extended southwards, so too is the market um, that they create. So um, with uh, a, a project of funneling migration into the most dangerous parts of the U.S.-Mexico borderlands, which happens um, in not coincidentally, it happens at the same time as the passage of NAFTA in the mid-90s. Um, and this is, this is the logic behind how bordering uh, worked at that moment was the idea that they would seal off the border at the places where people had regularly crossed, particularly urban areas, and push migration through the parts of the borderlands that were much more treacherous, particularly the Arizona desert, um, and that that would cause more people to suffer and die, which would then act as a deterrent um, so that fewer people would try to migrate 
because migration would become harder um, and physically harder and, and more deadly, quite literally. Um, that sort of bet didn't really work in terms of the deterrent effect. It is true that more people did start to die trying to cross into the United States, but it hasn't really ever worked as a deterrent. It hasn't had a successful second part to that equation. Um, but what it has done is make people who are specialists in getting things across the border clandestinely um, really valuable, increasingly valuable. So whereas um, the practice of smuggling people, what is called in Spanish coyotaje, um, had been sort of a separate business from drug smuggling and other kinds of smuggling, um, those things start to get pushed towards each other um, because, you know, following really basic market principles, right? As something becomes harder and more specialized, uh, the value of the people who know how to do it gets raised. Um, and so people can charge more for that. Um, so the price of crossing the U.S.-Mexico border goes up uh, substantially, but this this whole process filters down through Mexico. So, for a long time, uh, people from Honduras, for example, would would make their way across Mexico, sort of on their own. Um, they would try to maybe riding the freight train, which has now become a really familiar image, but also could maybe hitch rides or get on and off buses um, and make their way to northern Mexico, and then entangle with the landscape of uh, border uh, enforcement and and smugglers and all of that. But as um, Mexico has been encouraged to um, crack down on migration throughout Mexico, so too have the, has that become a really lucrative market for people who are involved in smuggling. And so people are increasingly having to hire guides or coyotes or polleros. There's a range of different names um, to get them across Southern Mexico, to get them into Mexico. Um, I was talking to a friend in Honduras who'd been deported, um, and she was saying that recently uh, friends of hers have hired a coyote, and it now costs $18,000 to get from Honduras to the United States, um, which is a sum of money that is extraordinarily high for people from Honduras. When you talk about people involved in smuggling and and other kinds of things, you're talking about the cartels and the gangs. Yeah. Um, so the drug cartels are kind of the primary. They're the, the highest uh, level of the hierarchy. Um, they control the territory in Mexico and they control who can move people through that territory. So the drug cartels aren't necessarily um, the people who are moving someone across space themselves, um, especially in Central America and Southern Mexico, um, but they control who has the go-ahead to do so. So to get across Mexico, the pollero or the coyote or the guia, whoever is, is the person moving you across space, is paying up to the plaza bosses, which in Mexico that landscape is controlled by one drug cartel or another. Um, they sort of have franchises down that are, that are uh, kind of operate down the hierarchy that kick up to the, the drug cartels. Um, but 
all of the the control of movement across Mexican territory is really in the hands of drug cartels at the end of the day. At the border, they are um, also directly overseeing that. Like they will determine who can cross and when, um, and when drugs are being moved and when people are being moved, um, and trying to do that without their authorization and without their um, without paying them the the fee that they require is risking your life. A world under stress needs leaders in every discipline and in every country. Leaders whose work is innovative, courageous, rooted in universal values and global in approach or implication. If you know someone like that in your company, in your university, in your community, anywhere, please nominate that person for the Talberg SNF Aliasin Global Leadership Prize. Go to talbergprize.org. That's T A L L B E R G prize.org. One result of that, I suspect, has been the phenomenon of caravans. Uh, with numbers, their safety, uh, the price may go down, what, whatever, whatever the dynamic is. Uh, a relatively new phenomenon that scares American politicians, drives the U.S. media nuts. Um, I know that you have participated in at least one of, one of these, so you know it firsthand. Uh, lots of questions. Why caravans? What's it like to travel in them? Do they work? And what happens when they hit the wall, which is the border? Yeah, I have um, a kind of unique up-close look at caravans. So caravans are something that have a much longer history than I think um, is known by a lot of the U.S. public. They really burst onto the scene during the Trump administration because the Trump administration um, really focused on them as this example of of invasion, um, but they are a, it's a it's a mobility tactic that has been used for a long time in Mexico. I was part of what was the first migrant caravan in 2011, um, which was which draws on a repertoire of caravans as protest in Mexico that has a much longer history to begin with, but in 2011. Um, we, uh, I was doing field work at a shelter in Southern Mexico and some human rights activists and priests and journalists and, um, students kind of all came together because there had been a kind of systematic, um, assault on migrants in a very short stretch of Southern Mexico from, um, Arriaga in Chiapas to Ixtepec in Oaxaca, which is about a three and a half hour drive but at the time took about 12 hours on top of the freight train. And that freight train was being assaulted by criminals and thieves, but also by police um, regularly. And so the idea was to gather sort of broadly defined human rights defenders to accompany migrants across that stretch. So literally helping them get to safety um, on this, uh, the other end of it. Um, by having strength in numbers, but also by calling attention to it. So bringing light to it too, so that this isn't a, a process that is happening in the shadows, but is instead being covered by the press, is being um, is demanding a kind of protection of rights to, to safety and security from the Mexican government, regardless of immigration status. Um, the governor of Chiapas showed up, the governor of Oaxaca showed up, um, And we collectively walked um, from this point in Chiapas 
through to this point in in Oaxaca. And at that point, um, some officials, some high ranking people in local government started like providing buses and transportation for everyone. It was a small group of about 300 people, and we went across this very small stretch of southern Mexico, but that was really kind of the beginning of what started to become known as a potential way of making it across particularly dangerous stretches of Mexico, that by getting together in large numbers of people, um, people could avoid all of the dangers and risks that come with Um, clandestinity that come with being trying to be as invisible as possible. So sexual assault, uh, robbery, theft, um, kidnapping, um, forced labor, and deportation. Um, And also avoiding the high costs of hiring a coyote. Um, So caravans start to become an idea of a way to get across space safely and also for the people who do not have the means to hire um, a guide, a smuggler. Um, And this starts in 2011 and grows. Um, In 2014, I was with, uh, there were sort of successive caravans that made their way to Mexico City with about a thousand people. Um, I remember they did a a sort of sit-in in front of Los Pinos, the, the sort of Mexican equivalent of the White House, again, demanding Um, that Mexico recognize a kind of right to free transit and to guarantee the human rights of migrants um, in their territory. And this all grows and grows over time until we get to 2018, when there is the sort of largest caravan in in history um, that gets uh, attention from the U.S. president at the time. The obvious question is whether, from the migrants' point of view, they work. Are you more likely to make it safely to the border, put aside across the border, uh, via a caravan than you are, as you said, in the shadows? So for a time, yes. Um, It was a successful strategy of mobility for some people at a certain moment, Um, not without risks and not without hardship. I mean, essentially, caravans are walking across the length of Mexico, um, which is extremely hard on the body. Um, The 2018 caravan, which I I also accompanied for parts, people died during the journey. It's not that it is a, a, a sort of carnival atmosphere where everything is wonderful. Um, the, the, the deprivations and the physical wear and tear on the body are still very much part of that process. But for people who did not have other means to make their way across Mexico, the caravan, uh, joining together in a caravan became for a while, um, a really successful strategy of making it to the northern border. But that was kind of counting on Mexico to be hands-off, to not uh, crack down fully, um, to, I think Mexico was always sort of ambivalent about how it was supposed to react to this kind of public migration. Um, but with the the new administration of López Obrador, um, 
in like he came into office at the end of 2018 in early 2019 he really changed tactics and started um pushing people in caravan sort of back um using a kind of uh using the newly formed guardia nacional the the national guard which is like a militarized police force in mexico to um kind of uh use the methods of attrition to uh, disarticulate caravans. So people would join in groups in Southern Mexico in Tapachula and try to make their way North, but the Guardia Nacional would be there and like, wouldn't let them leave the highway, wouldn't let them buy water, wasn't necessarily using bullets, um, or tear gas to keep them from moving on, but was, um, uh, making it so difficult that people frequently would give up. Um, so I think the caravan as a tactic since 2019 um, has become less successful. And I think now we see fewer caravans organized, although people still do have that in their kind of collective consciousness of a way to potentially try and get to northern Mexico. Um Tapachula, this southern city in Mexico where um, a lot of refugee claims are adjudicated, has become sort of a, people call it an an open air prison in a sense because people are contained there. And uh, people can frequently make it to Tapachula, but can't get further into Mexico any longer. Um, And every once in a while, we still do see people joining together in groups of three or 500 and saying, we're going to walk together and maybe safety in numbers will get us through. Although it's, it's a lot less successful now than it was in 2018 and early 2019. Let's fast forward to 2023. Uh, What are politely called border encounters, good bureaucratic term, uh, rose significantly since president Biden took office and now have fallen significantly. Uh, although still at 100,000 a month's order of magnitude. It's hard to keep track of all of the shifts in American policy, which seems to change week to week, uh, sometimes day to day. Uh, But clearly, President Biden has more or less continued the Trump administration policies, certainly policy intent, and in some cases, specific policies. Mexico, as you've just argued, is essentially become the outsourced uh, executor, for want of a better word, of American migration policy. Why, as you've just described, did President uh, Lopez Obrador agree to that role? Uh, is it in? Is it because Mexico has become a destination country itself and is evolving into the same kind of policies that the Americans have, that the Europeans have, a not particularly friendly attitude towards migrants, or is it something else? Yeah, I think I think Mexico is starting to become a de facto destination country, but not not really. It's not really the country of destination, but. As people find themselves unable to get to the United States, um, people end up getting sort of stuck in Mexico and end up staying there. The European equivalent is Turkey. Yes, exactly. Um, I think even Italy uh, is is that for a lot of people. That's not really where they'd like to be, but that's where they end up. Um, I think uh, uh, Andres Manuel López Obrador is... He came into office hoping to have a different tack 
he promised and talked about wanting to um, approach migration in a different way, um, to offer visas, to offer work visas, to offer humanitarian visas to Central Americans, to be a leader in terms of development in Central America that would potentially um, lessen the the urge for people to migrate. He had ideas about um, sort of containing but including people in southern Mexico. But after about uh, two months of of that, he he changed tack completely and went full into using the Guardia Nacional to essentially be a migration force in southern Mexico. So why? I mean, my analysis of this is that in no constant negotiations with the United States, Mexico has only so many kinds of cards to play. And I think migration policy is one area where um, López Obrador can um, offer something that the United States wants and in turn um, get perhaps some more leeway and flexibility and um, get the United States to be less uh, concerned with his domestic policies, which is where his agenda really is. He has um, a kind of populist, but a a very nationalist populist um, approach to to politics and governance. And he's got lots of things that he wants to do in terms of oil and lithium and and resources, um, but also restructuring of the economy in, in different ways that in other moments, the United States might be more directly um, concerned about. But I think that playing ball with the United States in terms of migration uh, detention um, gives him a bit more breathing room on the other things that might otherwise usually be um, very much a part of U.S.-Mexico relations. Um, And I think for him, it's it's a relatively easy trade-off politically. Let's switch gears a bit. The Biden administration, but many of its predecessors, has pledged all sorts of development aid to address what they call the root causes of migration. You've pointed out that that approach, reducing migration by reducing poverty, has been talked about forever. It at least goes back to the Reagan administration and, and, and beyond, and that it always fails. I love the way you phrased it. Hondurans need something to stay behind for uh, if you really are trying to break this cycle. What would that take? Uh, So I think part of the reason why the kind of development projects don't have a really appreciable impact on migration is because so much of it is short-term focused. So much of it, they're kind of piecemeal projects to help people start like emprendimientos, like uh, small businesses, but really small businesses, like fixing cell phones out of their house, for example. Um, and I think Honduras needs um, much more investment in public and social infrastructure that will have, I think, results in a generation, but not in a year and not in five years and probably not in 10 years. Um, I think... Honduras needs investment in public education, um, which is just absolutely um, 
it is so bad the 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 access to public education i mean there are teachers teachers are there are, there are fine teachers in honduras i don't mean that the teachers themselves are bad but there are not enough teachers and there are not enough schools and the schools that there are are in horrendous conditions like with not don't have working bathrooms some don't have electricity in San Pedro Sula, in the the industrial and economic capital of the country, let alone talking about rural regions. Um, but investment in like real public education that's really free, because right now, although it is technically free, it is not actually free um, because people have to pay for all sorts of things, including uniforms and food and and uh, equipment and papers and pencils and and cleaning supplies for their classroom and and all sorts of things um, that is out of the reach of a lot of Honduran families. Um, but really investing in education in a way that was dignified, but didn't expect to have returns on that investment in in a couple of years, but in a generation. I think I think that would be one place to start. Um, you know, the new Honduran government came into power talking about investment in education and job opportunities in general terms, but in terms that were um, more along the lines of, of social building social infrastructure. Um, but they pretty quickly changed to a full-on security state. Um, they are uh, now changing towards um, declaring states of exception or states of emergency in different parts of the country. So suspending civil liberties and constitutional guarantees, um, allowing for uh, the arrest of people without warrants um, and allowing for the arrest of people for moving in a way that seems like moving around within the geography of, of the city in a way that seems suspicious. Um, all of which m might have some short-term, um, might uh, allow for some short-term positive indicators, but are going to produce more migration rather than less. But I, I don't see either on the Honduran government's part or the Mexican government's part or the U.S. or international community's part, the interest in the kind of investment that would really structurally offer people the opportunity to stay at home, which is what so many of the people I spoke to really would like. They would like to stay home, but there's just no chance for them. Um, that's how so many people feel. But that is the ultimate tragedy, I think. I use the term failed state. You use the term failed society they overlap at the least. And it's hard to imagine from what you've just said that either of those conditions, failed state or failed society, are likely to be cured anytime soon, which is therefore like easy to see how first Mexico and then the United States are likely to become harder and harder in terms of how they deal with this issue. So you get this vicious cycle that heads in all the wrong directions. Can you imagine any reason why what I just said is wrong? Or rather, I hope you can imagine some reason why what I just said is wrong. No, I think you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, my, my work, the, the book that I'm working on based on the, my dissertation is specifically about how young men in particular from Honduras 
end up living lives kind of in circulation because they can't stay at home, but nowhere else really offers them the possibility of staying, of settling, of building a life, of protection, of security. And so they cycle through getting deported and then migrating again and getting detained and deported and migrating again. And the tragedy of this, there are many layers of tragedy here, but where they do find open arms in a sense is within the criminal organizations. Their their young men are all too frequently easy targets for the criminal organizations who who use them and 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 chew, chew them up and spit them out and and their lives are short and brutal. But there is they are the sort of structurally excluded find inclusion among the criminal organizations that have so much power and so much money. Um, and it is, it is, I think, devastating for young people who are trying to flee from worlds of violence because they would like to have a life that was less violent, because they would like to be in a place where people say this all the time in Honduras, because in the United States, people respect the rule of law. I just want to be in a place where there is rule of law, right? People talk in those terms, but what they end up getting is offers from organized crime or forced into organized crime or, as in the tragic recent case, dying in, in immigration detention. Amelia Frank Vitale, thank you for this conversation. I'm not sure we ended up with much new thinking, uh, but perhaps some new awareness. Thank you so much. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you for joining us. Please rate our show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe. Meanwhile, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Or you can subscribe to our newsletter at talbergfoundation.org to learn more about our work. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org. Thank you and we'll be back again next week for another episode of Talberg's New Thinking for a New World. This podcast was brought to you through the generous support of SNF, the Stavros Nyarkos Foundation. <laughs>